make something a bit explicit here about this connection between immigration and race, because obviously to be brown and to be an immigrant aren't one and the same. All right. I'm not an immigrant. However, this has never stopped anyone from yelling, Packy, go home at me. So I think that we've got to understand this through a story of race and the visibilization of difference. Thanks for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. If you'd like to know more about our events or become a member, do check us out on our website, www.thetroubleclub.com. You can also find this linked in the description below this podcast. Good evening, everybody. I'm so delighted to welcome you to this evening's panel discussion with the Trouble Club on why the pro-immigration message never lands. Um, I'm delighted that here with me this evening, I have uh, Zania Chopra from Kingsley Napley uh, Law uh, Legal Company, um, Sophia Wolpers from London First, and Ash Saka from Navara Media. If I could ask you all to introduce yourself very briefly, Ash, we'll start with you. Uh, my name is Ash Saka from Navara Media. I'm five foot two in Aries, a supporter of Tottenham Hotspur. I've run out of facts. Uh, I think that's enough. <laughs> uh, Zania? Hi, I'm Zinia Chopra, an immigrant, came to England from India in 2006, can't believe it's been 14 years here. Um, I've been working in immigration, I work for an immigration, uh, well, uh, for a law firm, but heading the client services for the law firm in uh, London called King's Dean Apley. And I've been passionately involved with immigration, supporting uh, international students and immigration all around. And hopefully what I talk makes sense today. <laughs> And hi, I'm Sophia Wolpers. Um, I'm the responsible person for immigration policy at business membership and kind of campaigning organization London First. Um, I'm German, as you might be able to hear. Um, I came to London right after the referendum um, and now get to work on all things Brexit and immigration. Um, so Brexit really supplied a job for an immigrant. Um, during 2014 and 15, I got to work on the other shore of, of the migration debate, I was working for UN Migration and UNHCR on the refugee crisis. So I can bring a couple different uh, perspectives to the topic. And I'm the chair for this evening, Lauren McEvitt. I'm a former UK government advisor um, who's worked on immigration policy, particularly in East Africa. And I'm also the child of two immigrants uh, to the United Kingdom, one from Ireland, one from the United States. So uh, I'm delighted to be involved in uh, in policy discussions of this kind. So I think um, I'll kick off this evening by reiterating the point that underlines this whole uh, debate this evening, which is that we are not here to discuss the goods and the ills of immigration as a thing. We are taking as the basis point for this, this evening that immigration is a fundamental good. And we are asking ourselves why it is that anti-immigration advocates keep winning public policy and public discourse arguments. So with that in mind as the basis for the evening, I think the kickoff question um, that I'll, I'll ask um, is uh, why is it that we have failed so dismally as pro-immigration advocates to really land the immigration message as a, as a net positive, as a net good for the country when it, with, when it comes to voters and when it comes to the, the media more broadly? Um, and uh, Ash, can we go to you first? I mean, 
I think in order to address this question, we've got to work out what immigration is and what it represents. Because I think if you try and answer this question through purely technocratic means, you are never going to build the kind of popular consent for pro-immigration policies that we all want to see. So you've got to answer it as a political question, a historical question, a cultural question. And I think what immigration is, is the crystallization of all sorts of power dynamics and anxieties that are baked into what we think of as the modern nation state. And I think one of the things that we've really got to return to again and again in this discussion, particularly within a British context, is the history of empire. Because immigration controls are a relatively modern invention. Um, they're certainly an invention after the age of colonial endeavor and empire. And so you've got to think about what they're there to do. Um, they're not something which exists as uh, racially neutral. And in fact, these are often um, forms of state apparatus which are explicitly racialized. And I think that in the answering of this question, you've got to come back to, well, why is it that impingements on sovereignty are um, anthropomorphized as the figure of the migrant. What is the figure of the migrant doing there? And what fears does that speak to? And I would say my short answer is that it speaks to uh, the legacy that Britain has never really grappled with, the legacy of empire. Britain thinks that it never really had an empire and if it did, it was an especially good one. Um, there's not much thinking about what the loss of that empire did or what it meant to have you know, formerly colonized present day Commonwealth migrants come to this country, the very people who were considered racially inferior and still managed to kick out the empire upon which the sun would never set. And Sophia, well, I wonder if you can come in at this point to give a kind of a business sector analysis of why it is that politicians and the government in general are failing to land a message that immigration can be it can be a good thing for society and perhaps taking up a point or two from Ash about why it is that we failed in the education process over the last hundred years or so to, to ingrain immigration as a fundamental good into the post-colonial discourse of the UK. Sure. Um, I guess the thing is, immigration or immigrants in general are just such an easy scapegoat for any kind of social labour market policies that you have. Whenever there's a failing in the economy or in society, it's easy to blame the people who are the other, the different, the, the outsiders, because they came new and it's just, yeah easy to scapegoat them. But I think that's where we have to hold our politicians like more to account for them to look actually at the root causes of why people are afraid of immigrants. And what are they taking away? Because they're not really taking jobs away. What are the root causes that these people are so anxious about their status as in, in the UK? And if we do hold our politicians accountable and, and make them actually look at these topics, then they will have to maybe even admit their own shortcomings or how in lots of ways the system is not that equal or doesn't really uh, provide equal opportunity for lots of people in the UK for native Brits and how we need to actually shift that system to provide a better kind of level playing field. Um, when it comes to businesses I think business for a really long time have, have failed to really showcase the value that immigrants bring to the country. Um, Many of the contributions haven't really been that visible. 
um, in the last three years, I think there has been a lot more media attention towards that, that we have all seen all the reports on the value um, fruit pickers bring of care workers, but also obviously across tech and media and so on. But it's obviously constructing this like also not always most useful um, kind of tokenistic thing of, of, of the good immigrant. But nevertheless, immigrants have brought more valuable things to the UK are in the majority productive parts of it. And I think this is where, where we kind of need to step up in terms of don't need to be afraid. Diversity is great. Diversity brings more jobs in, in general normally. And where we need to start shifting public perception. And we have we have been on a, on a good, I think, trajectory actually the last three years. Public perception towards immigration has been shifting. People are much less negative about it. Um, and I think Westminster hasn't really woken up to that because we're still operating on a plan for the new immigration system that is based on whatever irrational fears from, from 2014 and 15 and has nothing to do with constructing an immigration system that will help actually fill the labor market gaps that the UK labor market will have in the coming years. And Xenia, from your, from your experience um, within the, uh, the actual, to, to use Ash's term there, the technocratic side of immigration, uh, what's your view about why it is possibly that we're failing to land this message more broadly, uh, particularly I'm interested in outside the, uh, the M25 and metropolitan areas of the UK? Oh, Xenia, you're on, you're on mute. Sorry, that often happens on Zoom. Um, I was just saying, I think generally I find that the perception, as Sophie also rightly pointed out, the perception on immigration has been changing, especially in the last couple of years. I know a lot of think tanks particularly are making the case for uh, argument in favor of immigration. I mean, uh, Ipsos Mori did a poll in 2019 and the poll itself said that just under half, about 45% of the public had said that they're more positive about immigration impact on Britain, whereas there was only 31% who thought that it was still negative and the rest didn't really have a particular view. So I know there are organizations and businesses that are now making a strong case for immigration. Um, also, I think, you know, it's it kind of has been um, the political and the media agenda to put down immigration and not necessarily share the economic benefits of immigration. I think the public generally, the, or the general public doesn't really have the in understanding of the benefits that immigration brings or the immigrants bring to the UK. So I think there needs to be a lot more awareness that needs to be brought in the eyes of the general public. And plus it doesn't really help from our political leaders who really, again, they don't talk about immigration as much. And, you know, let's just take Boris, for example, who was, when he was the mayor, he was definitely very pro-immigration. And then, you know, now that he's in the office, his views have completely changed on immigration. So, you know, not having a leader who is clear, then the media's propaganda, all of these things definitely don't help. Um, and I feel when it comes to um, pol politicians and you know, I think they just not necessarily talk about the benefits of immigration just because they want to appease the general public who's really ignorant about the positive effects of immigration. So I think it kind of boils down to all of these things together. I mean, I think I could also add that 
understanding immigration rules is not easy as lawyers ourselves within our law firm having worked in the immigration sector for years because the immigration rules change so often the guidance around it is so complex it goes into thousands and thousands of pages it's very hard to understand the immigration system on on its own and how does it work but you're right there has to be a lot more conversations around uh, highlighting the positive impact of immigration and the benefits that migrants add to the UK as a whole. I think one of the things I'd like to drill down into for my, for my, my next question um, that all three of you have sort of touched on, but that I think is um, uh, quite an, an important point from the point of view of policymakers who would like to change the narrative on this, mm -hmm. um, which is to talk a bit about rural and left behind or post-industrial areas within the United Kingdom. So we know uh, as for very metropolitan, cosmopolitan women, uh, that the net benefit to the United Kingdom from immigration is huge. We've all seen the statistics, we've seen the polling, we know that that is a fact. Um, but somehow this is failing to leave London. This is failing to leave Manchester. And I think one of the really big examples of that is the, the collapsing of the Labour Party's red wall uh, at the election in December last year which was for reasons that were beyond Brexit. And one of the interesting things I'd like to drill down into now is how it is that policymakers can pivot policy away from, sorry, Sophia, being London-centric policy in the hopes that the rising tide raises all ships and that perceptions of this begin to change. And, you know, this is an area where perception can change and can change quickly. I mean, there's, there's polling that I've been looking for all afternoon, but I, did, I, I have seen it uh, in the last couple of years that said that where um, black American GIs, African American GIs and um, uh, sort of colonial troops and our Commonwealth troops were, were billeted in the United Kingdom in the Second World War, still has a legacy today of positive views of immigration. How is it that we can use evidence like that and the policy levers that, is, that exist within the UK to change some of the views in these left behind areas? jumping in first on this <laughs> um i mean i've got i've got some thoughts here i've got some thoughts here i want to i thought you might i want to i want to make something a bit explicit here about this connection between immigration and race because obviously to be brown and to be an immigrant aren't one and the same all right i'm not an immigrant however this has never stopped anyone from yelling packy go home at me so I think that we've got to understand this through a story of race and the visibilization of difference. Uh, my best mate is Irish. She never gets picked up as an immigrant when we're out together, right? It's, it's, it's the slippery work that race is doing here. And I think that this is really crucial to addressing this question because brown people don't just exist in the metropolitan hubs, right? So yes, we're in Manchester, we're in Leeds, we're in Birmingham, we're in London, but we're in Oldham, we're in Rochdale, we're in Rotherham, we're in Corn Valley, uh, you know, we're, we're in all these places too. I think that one of the big differences is that one, in these places, you have had the complete eradication of the economic heart of these places. These are no longer productive centers and the, and the engine of our economy. As our economy has become more and more dependent on financial services, that's moved to London. And what's replaced it in these former industrialized heartlands? 
warehouses, logistics, distribution, call centers, precarious, low wage, low status work. And so you put people in an environment of scarcity and you inject um, xenophobic ideology via uh, the mainstream broadcast and print media, of course you end up with resentments. But I would also say that there's a cultural component here because acceptance for people of color and for immigrants in these metropolitan centers was hard won, right? It's not as if, you know, my grandma got here in the 1950s was like, hello, and everyone was like, oh yeah, you're all right. You know, she had the crap beaten out of her. So did my mother. Um, so did pretty much everyone of that generation. And what stopped it wasn't a kind of inevitable tolerance. It was through brown people having cultural institutions and centers of power of their own. That was what Notting Hill Carnival was about. That was what Asian women's centers were about. That was what the anti-racist movement, which had to, uh, literally fight off the far right and the NF in Newham. That's what all of that was about. So I think if we approach this purely from policy rather than what is the grassroots like, what is the lived experience for people of color and not just thinking about empowering uh, white Brits who are, have been economically disadvantaged, but those equally and sometimes more so economically disadvantaged people of color and immigrants to create a sense of power because no one respects you when you approach it from, you know, the humble, you know, and you're like this and you're begging for acceptance. That's not what happens. It's from power, self-belief, solidarity, and I would also say a degree of self-determination within uh, neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, Sophia, sorry to, you know, land this on London's doorstep when you are now the voice of London for this evening. Um, and what do you feel that the from a post-industrial area point of view, which Ash has picked up on very well there, what do you feel there is the possibility for when it comes to levers of power to, 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 to shift the balance here of views? I guess I first have to clarify that despite London First having, in that way, I guess, a terrible name uh, titled, uh, approaching any kind of immigration debate uh, with some uh, close by namesakes. Um, but as well and first the immigration policy as we approached it was always with a view to the whole of the uk not kind of trying to uh, have campaign on some favorable immigration rules for london to make sure london gets all the people into into fintech and financial services because those those sectors don't need that much help to be honest you were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. And immigration policy is something that should be constructed in a way where it does increase the actual economic pie and i think that's where we get back to how do we how do we spin the kind of national narrative immigration is a net positive it increases the economic pie then there's more immigrants also normally means there's more to go around um, if you think about scotland also quite in some ways kind of left behind obviously um, 
more they have been really positive about immigration because they know if they get more people into small villages they will get a closer gp service instead of having to drive 50 minutes to your gp you will only have to do five minutes because if there's more people then there's also more of these service provisions and there's more money to pay for them because most immigrants do work and they haven't been actual drag on 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 on, on uh, social benefits um and I guess that is that is one of the things where when it comes to the whole kind of EU immigration Brexit debate, um, where the UK never used the immigration controls it could have had that the EU provided um, on lots of that kind of immigration coming from the EU. Um, and if they would have enforced a little bit more, people would have maybe felt less like there is, is just a rush of people coming in without controls and checks and balances. Um, there are some systemic reasons why the UK couldn't use them, but that's uh, be it a central registration system and ID cards, but that is on the side of the UK in terms of failures of how to do immigration control, not, um, not really on, on, on the immigrants. Um, and I think one of the bits is that if all of policy, especially for these kind of left behind areas would more focus on how to lift the floor for everybody, then these people wouldn't feel so in such precarious situations. They wouldn't feel like their livelihood has been taken away and has now been replaced with some gig economy jobs. Um, it, it is absolutely possible to, to do better policy and we do need better policy to raise the floor. Um, one of the things that we as London Firth have been campaigning for was um, a lower salary threshold, but not, a, not, not completely taken away. A salary threshold kind of in the level of, of the um, fair, um, like fair label, uh, fair wage. Um, because for many, many jobs, in the, especially in the lower end, that would actually have raised their salary floor. And by starting and kind of getting employers to pay a slightly higher salary for imported labor, it would have raised over time the salary levels for, for the native workers. So it would have been a net positive for everybody. What the Home Office currently wants to do as a salary threshold is basically make businesses jump. They make it impossible um, for, you. I mean, you can't hire a care worker. Care workers get paid about 16K, um, which is should be legal because that's basically below like minimum salary for most. Um, but instead of, of then creating that a salary threshold of 20k, which would have meant there's a lot more of an incentive for training and for just in general increasing. If you have to hire the foreign care worker for 20k, you will look a lot harder for native workers to do that because you can still get them right now for a little bit cheaper. But after time, there would be kind of a balancing act and, and wages would increase. The Home Office doesn't want to do that. They rather want to make businesses jump, but businesses can't jump and not in this economic situation. Um, so we will see in, in sectors where, where those jumps are not possible, they will go and jump all the way to complete automation or just go somewhere else. Because if it's not viable to be in some random place in the UK, then you go back to different country or to, to, the, to the metropolitan centers. And Xenia, from your experience with dealing with this from a legal perspective, one of the things I'm most interested in is the is the the, the breakout of 
um, immigrants to the United Kingdom within the United Kingdom. Obviously, Ash has spoken a lot about um, the, the movement of people within the UK uh, as a whole. Um, I'm also particularly interested in uh, movement of people now coming from Europe and having and applying for settled status and looking for assistance and applying for settled status. Yeah. How big are movements of people within the United Kingdom outside of major metropolitan areas? Well, so, so there is a brand new immigration system that's coming into play from 1st January 2021. And this immigration system is going to be a lot more positive than the, the way it sits currently. So some of the positive changes that they're bringing in, we're getting rid of the cap of like say 20,700, which currently sits to bring in a highly skilled migrant worker. Um, Sophia briefly touched on the point about the skill threshold. And I know the MAC committee definitely advised the Home Office about reducing the skills threshold. So for, for example, if you wanted to bring in a skilled worker in the UK at the moment, they would need to have what we call a certain skill level of RQF level six. But as of 1st January 2021, this skill level is being dropped to RQF level three. That means jobs that currently are not uh, you know, available to be sponsored by employers, these jobs will then, the employers will be able to sponsor those employers, uh, those um, migrants. So let's take an example for a care, a care worker. At the moment, you wouldn't be able to sponsor a care worker, but under the new immigration system, that will be possible. We're also reducing salary thresholds as well. So if you, again, going back to the current immigration system where you wanted to sponsor a skilled migrant worker, you'd need to have to pay them minimum of 30,000 pounds, which is not always possible. Look at the industries like hospitality, agriculture, um, you know, the certain so many construction, these industries, you can't afford to pay those kind of higher salary levels. But again, I think the UKVR definitely take, you know, taken into consideration the points and suggestions made by the MAC committee and these thresholds are being dropped to as low as 25,600 points. They're introducing what we're calling tradable points. So if for example, someone doesn't meet the salary required salary threshold, if they have a PhD or if they're in a shortage occupation role, then those points could be traded over to meet the, the requirements of sponsorship under, tier, uh, under what is now going to be called the skilled worker visa. Also, I think the government, you know, so these are some very good policies that the Home Office have introduced, um, you know, offering this graduate visa route, because I don't know, how, we all remember back in 2012, 2012, Theresa May, she cancelled the post-study worker visa route. And me, for example, I came from India to the UK as an international student to study, to, you know, to make something of myself. And I took advantage of this post-study worker visa and stayed in the UK for two years to find a job. And then, you know, hopefully uh, I then moved on to uh, a highly skilled visa, which also has been cancelled now, doesn't exist anymore. But my point is the government is introducing these new uh, policies that will definitely benefit the, uh, the migrants, whether it's lower skills threshold, whether it's lower salaries, introduction of graduate visa routes. Um, and when it comes to people outside of London, I think when people feel like their lives are improving, then they're less likely to look for scapegoats. Um, I know during this you know, COVID time, that is certainly a challenge and you know, with the recession, of course, that will be a challenge. But with the, you know, with the um, setting up these new positive policies in the new immigration system, hopefully you know, the people are able to see the advantages that uh, this new immigration system will provide. Also, all the EU nationals and uh, non-EU nationals will be treated equally. Now, this might be, this is a very positive for 
non-EU migrants because they'll be on the same level field as an EU migrant. Not necessarily a good thing for the EU migrants because employers in, you know, who have traditionally relied on workers from the EU have never had to get, you know, get involved with having a sponsor license, paying the fees, getting grips with what is, what is a skills charge, what is an immigration health surcharge, advertising of jobs, all of that, although they're eliminating the resident labor market test as of next year, but employers will have to grapple with these new changes, especially if they rely on EU workers. But I don't think all is lost because I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of these new positive changes that are coming in. Something that is negative, I guess, would be for the employers, again, who traditionally have relied on EU workforce is getting grips with understanding the obligations that they have under the new immigration system, having a compliance system to track and monitor these migrants, um, paying the fees, which can be absolutely exorbitant. Um, I know that the immigration health surcharge is meant to go up to, was supposed to go up to 624 pounds on 1st of October, but there's been a certain delay, which is definitely a positive because over the years, this has certainly gone up. We started off with 200 pounds, went on to 400 pounds, and now we're going up to 624 pounds per year. Can you imagine if you're looking to sponsor someone for five years, the amount of fees that you'll have to pay, immigration health surcharge, let's time it 624 times five, skills charge if you're medium to large business, 1,000 pounds plus five, home office visa fees, uh, biometric fees, soft rasteria fees, these numbers are all going to add up. So... Um, yes, there are going to be positive changes to the policies, but I think employers and businesses in general definitely have to take into account uh, the fees and the compliance issues around the new immigration system. So with all of these changes in immigration in the last, in the last five years, which encompasses the Brexit vote, and the last 12 years more broadly, do you think that the harshening of the immigration system has had any impact whatsoever on assuaging the fears and the concerns of people who are voicing themselves to be anti-immigration. Um, and if it hasn't, what is it that we then do to, to turn the boat around on that? Because clearly the government has taken steps to be more stringent, to have more controls on immigration. If that isn't what people were looking for, if it is purely racism, then how does the government begin to turn the boat around on that? I think I can quickly come in on this. Um, I guess the government kind of followed its own scapegoat route instead of really addressing the root problems here um, because the migration system wasn't really the problem, neither was EU freedom of movement. That wasn't the problem of, of, of kind of labour market shortcomings. What they should have looked at was should have been education policy, talent pipelines and general labour market policy because maybe being the most liberal labour market in, in the European area didn't quite work out all the time and especially not after the financial crisis so they should have looked at a lot more social uh, um, support networks and how to figure out that policy instead of going for their own scapegoat and, and, and looking at immigration policy because the UK system wasn't great but it wasn't that terrible um, yes they are currently making some improvements as, as Xenia has has um, has pointed out but it's still a really expensive system now being now that EU citizens will have to go through the system as well. I'm not sure if overall it is a positive change to it. It will be easier for, for highly educated people from, from very diverse parts of the world, but 
does that mean that, that the overall shift on immigration will happen as they think? I think if they have gone for, if they truly want to make the immigration system a lot tighter, um, then they don't achieve that with the current system either. It's, it's, it's a lot of red herring. It is called Australian system, but it doesn't actually work like an Australian system. Um, and it will bring in, if they try to, if the aim was to limit brown people coming in, I'm not sure that's what they will be going, that's what's going to be the end result. Is going to be. I want to add something to what Sophia, you pointed out here. I think what also, you know, I talked about initially how the politicians in the UK, their agenda and propaganda has been to appease the general public who doesn't understand the economic benefits of migration. But I think what, by opening up the immigration system, what they don't realize, and probably one year down the line, the general public is going to realize that we're basically, yeah, we're closing the door. We've, we've gone through Brexit, but, and we're subjecting the EU nationals to come into the UK under a new immigration system. So that will probably be more controlled. But what they don't realize, because we're getting rid of the resident labor market test and what that basically means at the moment if you want to sponsor someone to come into the UK you have to advertise the job for 28 days to prove to the home office why you're offering this job to a migrant so there are these this process in place and once you submit that uh, application to the home office they will then look at it closely and they'll decide whether or not they want to allow you to sponsor that particular individual but first January 2021 when we're getting rid of the rest and labor market test which means anyone and everyone can bring in any migrant into the UK whether EU or non-EU without having to justify this and I think the general public doesn't really understand that and once they do that the repercussions of that, who knows, that could be quite huge. And I don't think um, the government has taken that into consideration. Um, I recently attended a seminar with some of the senior officials from the Home Office, and now they're being very cautious because probably they've, in hindsight, they've realized that this, is, this policy is not going to work very well. Yes, it helps British businesses who rely on migrant workforce, but it may not be in the best interest of the public, especially after COVID, and especially when we're gonna go through recession and everything else. And they have started to use the word, we're, we're not getting rid of the resident labor market test, we're just suspending it. So they're already changing their tack around this policy, which hasn't even come into play just yet. So I just thought that would be interesting to add to your point. Can I chime in here? Because I disagree with everybody. Um, and, 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 the, and the main thing that I disagree with is this um, posing uh, anti-immigration sentiment as a question of ignorance of the economic benefits. Because there was some polling which was conducted by Lord Ashcroft shortly after the EU referendum result. And it was a really good, robust set of polls. And it was um, especially good for looking at how uh, particular issues have been polarised and how. And one of the questions asked was, how much of your personal household income would you be willing to sacrifice in order to reduce immigration? And they had various, you know, amounts of, you know, by this much to reduce immigration, by this much and so on and so forth. And it was really polarized between people who wanted to take no hit to the household income, keep immigration levels the same, to people who would be willing to see huge falls in their own personal household income in order to drastically reduce immigration. And the reason why I think that this is important is because appealing to, I think, um, some of the uh, orthodox means by which we, you know, measure a healthy economy 
in order to build popular consent for immigration, I don't think is going to work in winning over these people. These are questions about what they think of the nation, who a citizen is, who is seen as a legitimate part of this country, um, and what, what it is they have to fear from them. Because not all of it is to do with pure economics or a perception of economics. And I think un until we, we really grapple with that and seriously grapple with it, all we're going to do is essentially pursue uh, you know, some of the technocratic policies of the new Labour era, where you're playing this balancing act of trying to look hardline on immigration, but you do recognise the economic benefits and you're, you know, trying to hold those two horses together in one harness, um, which I think has brought us to this kind of explosive uh, point of xenophobia where we are today. And I, so I'm going to pivot now to some of the questions that have been coming in that are related to what we're talking about. Um, one of which, if I can uh, bring it up um, and not crash the entire thing, which would be good. Uh, one of which relates to, I think, uh, what we would possibly phrase as culpability um, in terms of, of the, the current narrative. And it's uh, from Sophie Holborough. Um, labour controls on immigration mugs and Corbyn's references to quote-unquote cheap labour were catastrophic dog whistles. Labour were not brave enough to stand up for immigration nor for Remain and are massively culpable in terms of where we find ourselves uh, hell in terms of this and many other debates. Well, I hope this particular debate hasn't been hell for you, Sophie. Um, so the question is, uh, who is going to be brave enough to, uh, to address um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the language and the dog whistles. And I think I'll, I'll tie that in briefly um, to another question that's come in, um, uh, which is, uh, oh, no, I've lost it, I'm sorry. Um, the political correctness argument. So it's from Katie Preen, who's asked, I feel there's a connection between what those on the anti-immigrant side would call political correctness and what white people in red wall areas see as foreigners being imposed on their area by some external power. Given the current government's drive to quash wokeness in schools, unis, and the cultural conversation generally, how are we going to get people to recognize that what they feel isn't actually what's happening, but the effect of an agenda in the media and politics to blame others? And how do we stop the misplaced anti-immigrant sentiment that results given that the government seems to want to promote it. So on the one hand, culpability from the Labour Party for not taking it out enough of a pro stance on this. On the other hand, how do we grapple with a perception that the government is, is feeding so much of this narrative? I mean, Labour's never been a party of all workers. It's been a party of some workers. Uh, if you want to think about the history of the Labour Party, really it's about brokering an agreement with that sort of, you know, top section of the working class and the upper echelons of the trade union movement and capital. That's what it's always been about. Um, so I think that the branding that the Labour Party sometimes likes to do of, oh, we're an anti-racist party is, is, is kind of for the birds. It's for people who don't know that much about the Labour Party's history. Um, and I think in terms of where Corbyn was at with the Brexit positioning, uh, he was in a really difficult circumstance. There had been a democratic result. What do you do with it? Uh, polarizing it further between overturn the result uh, or try and come up with a compromise, there was no good option. And I think the fundamental problem of that is that the Labour Party did not know what it was going to do with this question of immigration and the fact that its own electorate was so deeply, deeply divided. And I 
I think that that problem has been decades in the making. So I referenced New Labour earlier because I think it's really, really important. Because when I was growing up, I remember when New Labour became obsessed with asylum seekers. And I remember in the playground, people were calling each other as an insult. Oh, your mum's an asylum seeker. And no one really knew what that meant. We just knew that it was something bad. That's what we'd like absorbed through the media. And during this time, in order to look tough, uh, on the issue of asylum seekers. David Blunkett uh, spearheaded measures to reduce the number of successful asylum applications and replace it with temporary working visas. So again, it's this game of really encouraging the creation of a hyper-exploitable, racialized migrant class of worker, while at the same time looking really tough. And what that did was bolster the BNP. Uh, during the local elections in the early 2000s, I remember reading a Guardian article from that time for a different research project I was working on. New Labour banging on and on and on about asylum seekers meant that the BNP were going around, you know, that white flight ring around London, of, you know, like Thurrock and bits of Kent and Hertfordshire, banging on people's doors with, with the mainstream issue of the day. And I'll never forget, there was an interview with a woman whose name was um, Maureen Brownless, and uh, she lived in Broxbourne. And she said, I'm just sick. I'm sick of seeing all these asylum seekers going to the post office collecting their gyro. The problem was, as the journalist found out, there was not a single asylum seeker in Broxbourne. Thanks so much for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. While podcasts are great, we prefer the live experience. We host events in London four to six times per month and all of our speakers just happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. So these things 100% warp our sense of social reality. And I think that if we can, we can um, address that and go, the problem isn't who knows what, the problem is that we're not all existing in the same social reality. We've got to try and foster that uh, shared reading of reality. Then I think we can get a bit further to the kind of immigration policy we want to see. And Sophia or Zania, I don't know who wants to jump in there first, but do you have anything to add on that? I guess it kind of comes back to, to the point I first made. Labour just went for the easy scapegoat. They dropped the ball on something that should have been in absolutely in their wheelhouse and in their interest of kind of really creating a fair, fair uh, labour market. And they should have instead been uh, going from doorstep to doorstep, having an honest conversation with people because it wasn't the immigrant that was taking their job away or that was making them kind of economically precarious or anxious. It was the whole labor market situation and that's where they should have focused on, on like, how can we help you with that? Not how, like, why, like, yes, we understand you're afraid of the brown person, let's make sure not more come. That is not a solution to why these people have been feeling so, so precarious and anxious. I think I, I agree with you that uh, we've just never had an honest conversation in a long time about immigration, about migrants. And, you know, the fact that Home Office sending out vans with 
go back home, go back to your home country messages, you know, they, they just add to, to this negative press that we have surrounding around immigration. Unless these tactics and these tacks are changed, the message is never going to resonate with the general public. Why are we not, uh, when, why are we not, instead of saying go back home, why are we not saying that one in seven people who live in the UK were born abroad? Why are we not saying that 49% of the most uh, successful companies in the UK are by immigrant founders? Why are we not coming up with these messages? Why are we not saying that immigration, yes, it adds for demands for services, yes, it adds, uh, you know, um, burden on schools, NHS, all of that, but why are we not giving the message out that uh, if we're putting a demand on services, uh, we're also paying a lot in taxes, you know, uh, why are we not saying that, especially after COVID, it's all well and good that we're going and clapping on every Thursday, uh, who are the people who are delivering our food from Deliveroo and Uber Eats? Who are the people who are going to Tesco's and Waitrose and helping us shop? Uh, you know, our, our healthcare workers, where are these migrants coming from? And, uh, uh, you know, the point is that these are the open conversations that need to, need to come from political leaders who need to highlight these benefits, you know. Again, as I said, it's all great clapping for these NHS workers, clapping for care workers and people who've kept the UK economy afloat during COVID and these uncertain times. But are we going to be able to demonstrate the benefits that they have brought to the UK by showing some sort of gratitude, whether it's in the form of immigration policies or in any other way, so as to open the eyes of the general public? I think the thing I'd like to move on to briefly here that Ash has brought up, um, but that we haven't really touched on yet this evening, and that is uh, the issue of asylum and the issue of uh, refugees. I think one of the things we can probably all agree on is that there is a muddying in, in general perception, in publication, in public policy levers, uh, and in discourse uh, between asylum and refugee status and immigration more broadly. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about that from the United Kingdom's point of view is most people within the UK um, would view themselves as charitable individuals. A lot of people give to charity on a regular basis. A lot of people donate to charity on a regular basis. It's one of the things that people in the United Kingdom feel, I think, quite proud about that there is a vibrant charitable sector here. And yet the perception of the fact that the United Kingdom is a good place to live and a nice place to be from as an attractive proposition to someone fleeing persecution or fleeing detrimental societies around the world, how is that not translated into a positive view of people who wish to make their home here? Um, and how is it that we've so far failed so catastrophically to divest that narrative from the concept of uh, uh, a Merrill Lynch banker coming over and taking a, a 75,000 pound a year job from Paris instead of in, in, you know, in, in London? I guess one really important thing to differentiate here on is um, the immigration system is is a, is a po like policy tool meant to kind of fill labour market gaps. That's mm -hmm. what immigration policy is for, and that's what most countries use immigration for as a tool. And that is sits completely separate from your kind of humanistic value ethical moral approach to how to deal with refugees and asylum seekers that should come from a really like value proposition what kind of what type of country do you want to be are you a country that thinks of themselves with high moral and ethic standards 
and do you want to be seen like that and i think the uk has type like wants theoretically to be seen like that so that's where immigration and, and refugee and asylum laws are completely different things with asylum seekers you're not trying trying to fill labor market gaps you're trying to to offer people who've who have been who've had to flee their country or home and these people if they choose the uk as the place where they want to find refuge we should we should be proud that they see our country in such such a beaming light such a beacon that they would want to come here and want to make a life here and want to integrate and want to be part of the society and want to contribute to it because that is what they kind of aspire to as a good society if you're proud of your country you should be welcoming refugees because obviously these people do share your values they are proud of that country and i guess that is one of the things that um that always really baffles me asylum seekers are not allowed to work and therefore for years in this kind of limbo stage where they are a drag on on public uh, finances because if you have to house them somewhere and so on and they can't be productive parts of society then yes that's not good if you can get them offer them the opportunity to get into work as quickly as possible they can start contributing to society as quickly as possible and there's no better way than having a place of work to actually start integrating because we all know like making friends at work and so on you learn more about the culture you integrate so these things should be completely seen different and, and it, yeah the uk media and politicians keep throwing all the immigration and refugee stuff into one pot and it, it's just baffling because other countries have been able to keep it apart um, in Germany, the kind of immigration debate is completely separate from the refugee debate and they have been able to put the most positive spin basically on lots of the of the refugee things, even in an economic sense. Um, of course, I mean, in Germany, anti-immigration anti um, sentiments have also risen, but at the same time, Germany took in over one million <laughs> Syrian refugees. Um, so some anti anti migration or mostly not anti-migration it's just racist sentiments have risen uh mostly in the areas that have seen the least uh, um, immigration and also the least refugee settlements in in germany um i think we need to like really hold our politicians to account and start making sure they do separate these issues because they're not doing themselves any favors there either I absolutely agree with you. I don't think you could have put it any perfectly, Sophia. That's such a good point that you've made, especially around, you know, asylum seekers, that they should be given the right to work. I know the charity Refugee Action is definitely leading the campaign around this. And the fact that you bring up that, of course, they're stuck in the system for such a long time and they're allowed, you know, they, they live on £5.66, pounds, you know, sorry, £5.66p, you know, to survive. I mean, just not enough. £5.66p. I mean, how are these meant to survive? Of course, they're going to be a burden on the system. Like you said, you know, they need to be provided a house because they are, they're not able to take care of themselves. If we actually look at the numbers, in the, at the end of the year 2018, there were only 126,720 refugees compared to, you know, to, like you said, 1 million the, the refugees that Germany took in. You know, there were still 45,244 asylum, pending asylum cases. This is only one quarter 
of a percent, to put it in perspective, 0.26% of the UK's total population. So I don't understand what we're doing about this refugees and asylum seekers, because again, like you said, there has to be a debate around it, and this has to be separate from the immigration debate, uh, you know, because it's not about the labor workforce, asylum seekers and refugees. They have to have their uh, completely separate debate around this. And if we were to allow these asylum seekers the, the right to work quickly enough, it would benefit the economy by 97.8 million each year. So that's something for, of course, um, to think about. I mean, something that I've been considering is that during this conversation, there's a really big thing that we haven't talked about. And I think we should, because I think it can create a framework by which we can, we can uh, contextualize these things that we're talking about. We haven't mentioned Windrush. And I think it's really important that we mention Windrush because what Windrush shows us in some of the cases um, of victims of that system include people who were excluded from being able to get dental care, uh, couldn't work, and one gentleman, uh, his teeth fell out and he was so humiliated and ashamed, he wouldn't leave his flat. He was so socially isolated and depressed. The British government and all this wisdom decided that those years of suffering were worth thirteen thousand um, pounds, which is nothing. Which is nothing. And the thing that I would suggest is that these, what we're talking about, you know, the crappy accommodation that asylum seekers uh, live in. I mean, some of it is really just not fit for human habitation. Uh, the pittance of the allowance that they receive is that these are not accidents. Right? It's what we would call a feature and not a glitch. The cruelty is the point. And going back to, you know, Theresa May's hostile environment, the intention was to create such an unappealing environment for undocumented and irregular migrants to be in that they wanted to leave. And of course, uh, that system didn't just apply to those who were undocumented, it applied to those who had every right to be here as well. And I think that we can draw a line um, a pretty thick and clear line from where we are now and the cruelties that are baked in, this idea that what we want to do is discourage people from making a life for themselves here. Back through Theresa May, through Tony Blair, all the way back to, I think, the single most significant figure in immigration policy making this country has ever seen, Enoch Powell. Because that speech, Rivers of Blood, in 15 years' time, I see the black man having the whip hand over the white man, speaks to, I think, the psychopathology of xenophobia, this fear of an inverting of racial hierarchies. And Enoch Powell immediately, you know, he lost his, uh, you know, position on the front bench. But Powellism, the ideology, that survived and it thrived. And I think that, you know, again, I keep talking about the, the kind of cultural environment that we're all in. Um, and this is why I think that talking about the numbers isn't enough. But you've got to make a case for the shared humanity of, you know, Britain's born Britons and people who've arrived here too. That's really, that's fantastic because it actually answers the next question I was going to ask you all, um, which is uh, from Zaharan. Uh, and she was asking about um, whether or not anti-immigration rhetoric is linked to, a, to fear of ethno-nationalism in the UK and whether or not we feel there is a confusion between integration and assimilation for immigrants. 
um, and creating a divide, whether or not that creates a divide between immigrants um, and white Brits. Um, and we have maybe about 10 minutes uh, left before we, uh, before we close the evening. So if I can throw in another question there before uh, we move on to your answers, um, which is about the concept of uh, national boundaries from Wendy Davis. Um, who has asked, um, when talking to people who express racist views, I often talk about the arbitrariness, newness of national boundaries. Many countries are created by conquest lines drawn on maps, but if governments started to talk about this, I assume they would be immediately accused of being unpatriotic. So if we can talk for a minute about that ethno-nationalism in, in, in the United Kingdom and about integration and assimilation uh, and the arbitrariness of, of uh, the concept of national states uh, for a minute there to close, um, I think that that's covered off the bulk of at least the sentiment of the questions that have come in over the, over the course of the evening. So Zania, do you want to go first? I know you have to leave um, at, pretty promptly at eight. Um, no, I think I'll let uh, Ash and Sophia answer this question. That's okay, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll talk about the integration assimilation thing, which is um, obviously I want the socially integrated society. I think, uh, social contact with different kinds of people is self-evidently a good thing. I think shared institutions, educational institutions, workplaces, neighborhoods, these are brilliant things. Uh, I think um, programs which uh, facilitate that kind of shared cultural understanding, uh, English as second or other language programs, these are all really important. But fundamentally, it, it's, it's a canard, right? This is kind of a ruse, right? To make uh, the perceived integratability of the immigrant a condition for them being here. Right. Uh, one, I'm not even an immigrant, but two, even if I was, I would be the most, not even integrated, like assimilated, I was going to say a really rude word and I'm not, but the most assimilated person you could think of, right? I speak no other language, um, football maniac, I drink like it constitutes a personality trait, and I only date men who are deeply emotionally repressed, right? That's all very, very English, all right? Very English. But because the politics I advocate are hostile to the status quo. I'm seen as an ungrateful immigrant that I shouldn't be here. I'm a danger to white British society. And you can see how the conditionality of the presence of someone who's merely brown um, is contingent on what is your relationship to uh, the existing social order. So for me, it's not about, as an immigrant, do you, do you assimilate or do you not? As a brown person, do you culturally assimilate or do you not? I think cultural distinctiveness is a good thing. That's how change happens. That's how you know, variety happens. That creates an enjoyable social space for us to be in. It's about, do we have shared movements in which we can all have a collective and common purpose, which is the betterment of this society and social progress. And that's a different thing from integration. It's a shared terrain of struggle it's a political thing and not just a cultural disposition. Such a big topic. Um, I know, and you've got guess, about six minutes. <laughs> I guess when I came to the UK, one of the things that I was most excited about, and especially coming to London, was going to live in, in a society that is already so much more multicultural, ethnic and diverse than, than the cultures I had lived in before um, and I thought the UK was much further down on the whole debate on how to make multicultural societies work but apparently the UK had just been winging it um, over years and not actually doing the work of like how do we ensure that multicultural society works um, and it was just 
maybe some form of repression of like mm, just let's, let's get on with it and just not pay attention next problem maybe just wing it some more um and now obviously all of these things have kind of come crashing down brexit wasn't about eu immigrants and just as well as all the other things are not really about what they are um and yeah, it's just, it's just such a pity because the UK looked from the outset like a beacon of this multicultural and now we're struggling to figure out how we actually do this. Maybe we think, I think there is a case for constructing some, some actually strong national narrative, something like the American dream to make it in, in some ways, obviously the American dream flawed, absolutely flawed, but it has has um, kind of build a framework of what people can aspire to. They know what America is, and if you if you if you agree with the American dream, you're you're integrated, you're assimilated. There is a shared kind of mindset of what the country means, and the UK has all of those propositions if they could just use it properly to like construct it into this new narrative. Not sure Brexit is going to help with this because currently we are on a on a trajectory into the complete opposite direction, um, and. At the same time, obviously, the UK now needs to be a lot more open to the world and needs to look attractive. And with what we have done in the past couple years in terms of trying to look attractive to the world, we've not. The message that the rest of the world was is go home vans. And we're, we're now reaping the fruits of all this kind of making us unattractive at the worst possible time. Now we are actually Brexiting, and while the UK has maybe struggled with with not having the perfect kind of control mechanisms on immigration, um, I think there's going to be a whole bit of competition in the future of actually getting the right immigrants. Because why should they come to a country that they've now discovered is actually really xenophobic, is going to make it really hard for you to work here and come, um, because it's not like immigration and also like the attractiveness of the country is not about just the immigration rules people like already see the hurdles way before it doesn't have anything to do with reality so i think the uk really has some hard work in front of it in terms of trying to figure out how to make multicultural societies work and look attractive again so we're coming to the end now i I've tried to get through as many of the questions from the audience as possible. I must, I'm apologize that we, we haven't been able to get to all of them. Um, but just so that we leave on at least a semi-positive note and aren't completely bummed out on a Monday night, um, is there anything from uh, the three of you that you would like to say that you've seen that is a positive turn of events in perception towards immigration or asylum or refugee status within the UK in the last, say, year, two years or so? generational changes are really encouraging. Um, the stratification of anti-immigrant immigration sentiment by age is really, really striking. And when you uh, look at that polling alongside uh, polling on other social and e economic issues, uh, you've got a much more socially progressive and economically left-wing younger generation. And, um, you know, the boomer's got to die sometime. That's, uh, <laughs> that's all i got to say. Sophia, any positives to come out of the last couple of years? I guess one of the most positive things of the last six months was actually during, I mean, cut for carers and so on, slightly hypocritical, especially if done by MPs who have not voted to actually support the NHS or immigrants. 
but I think it was a nice thing in general to see this recognition that so many of our essential workers really make sure that we are staying alive, that we are able to keep keep working in our homes, that deliver our food, that stock the shelves, are actually immigrant workers and that immigrant workers are in many ways the backbone of our country. And I think lots of people really woke up to that fact. Um, and I think that that was a positive. We just need to make sure we keep going on that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sophia, Ash, and Zania for joining us at the Travel Club this evening. Um, and thank you all for attending. I hope you've all enjoyed uh, tonight's panel discussion. Um, if you've come as a guest and not as a member, I hope you'll consider joining the Travel Club um, after witnessing all four of us lovely people on a Monday evening. Um, and uh, I hope to see you again at one of the events very soon. Thank you so much for attending and thank you to all our panelists. Thank you. Thank you, bye-bye. You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.